This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Philip Taubman, a lecturer at Stanford University's Center for International Security and Cooperation, who was previously a reporter and editor at the New York Times for 30 years. Roger and Philip discuss his new authoritative biography of George Shultz, who served as Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan and helped to bring about the end of the Cold War. Philip's new book is titled In the Nation's Service, The Life and Times of George P. Shultz. Philip Talman, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to have you on. And uh, you're known uh, for your affiliation at Stanford, the Center for International Security and Cooperation. And your years at the New York Times as a reporter and an editor. But today we're here because you are the author of In the Nation's Service, The Life and Times of George P. Schultz, of course, the famed Secretary of State during the Reagan administration. And Phil, you were the one who was given the opportunity to write the authorized biography. How did that come about? Well, it's actually a, a fun story. Uh, a very Stanford-esque story. <laughs> I was uh, working on a book that uh, Schultz was part of. The book was called The Partnership, Five Cold Warriors and Their Quest to Ban the Bomb, uh, and uh, the others being Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and uh, Bill Perry. And at a uh, luncheon before the big football game between Stanford and Cal, uh, Schultz invites me over to a corner uh, and says, uh, would you be interested in doing my biography? And I said, uh, yes, I'm flattered that you would ask, uh, but I first got to finish this book. Uh, so it's going to take a while. And he said, well, as an inducement, uh, I'll give you exclusive access to my papers, which are stored at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And so over the next 18 months or so, I was, as I was finishing the other book, I went into the archive and uh, found some astonishingly interesting material, which we can come back and talk about. Uh, and so after about 18 months, he had been very patient. I went to him and I said, uh, George, uh, I'd, I'd love to do your biography uh, and thank you for inviting me, but we have to have a clear understanding. It's your life, but it's my book. <laughs> you note that in the beginning of your book here. And, That's a and great he, line. <laughs> he graciously and immediately accepted that. And I'm I'm pleased to report that over the ensuing eight to 10 years that I was working on the project, he never once uh, tried to alter any editorial content. In fact, he didn't even see the book until very late. Uh, it was uh, just the last year before he died. Uh, so it is an authorized biography in that sense, but it's an independent biography. So much there. I'm kind of curious to follow up on. Of course, we'll go through uh, the life and times of, of George Schultz. You said that between the time he offered the opportunity to you and the time you accepted, you marched on down to the Hoover Institution archives and I guess pulled various files from uh, George P. Schultz's papers and you found astonishingly interesting things. What's top of mind? What was the one or two things you saw? You're like, wow, this is this is juicy and interesting. Well, I think the number one item by far, and anyone who reads the book will see how important it was to doing the book, was a diary. 
that was kept by Raymond Seitz, his executive assistant, uh, during Schultz's first three, two, two and a half, three years as Secretary of State. Seitz went on to be ambassador to Great Britain, was a, a very experienced seasoned diplomat and a shrewd observer of Washington and power in Washington. Uh, and uh, Schultz had uh, total trust uh, in Seitz. So he would report back to Seitz every day on everything that he had done. Uh, Seitz was witness to some of what happened every day. But if Schultz went over to the White House or the Defense Department or wherever, he would come back and 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 recount what had happened. And Seitz kept careful notes, uh, turned it into a very elegantly written diary uh, that was then typed up every day or every few days by his secretary. And lo and behold, there it was at the Hoover Institution, all 800 single space type pages. Wow, what an insight into the day-to-day -day life of a Secretary of State. And it's full of revelations about uh, uh, triumphs and setbacks. And, you know, uh, it was very difficult for Schultz during his first year as a Secretary of State. Uh, we can talk about well, that. I, I definitely want to go into that, but I, I I want to build up to the to the man. He's obviously known as a Secretary of State, and, and you reveal so much about that time. But, of course, when he... By the time he was Secretary of State and was confirmed and entered the role, this was somebody who was a seasoned veteran of Washington, served in in multiple roles uh, in the Nixon administration, and 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 had always had uh, policy focus. Let's devote a few minutes uh, to George Shultz, Nixon administration, and kind of the the the, the building of of what became the statesman. What stands out to you? And you know, I note that in reading your book. You obviously admire and think there's a lot of there to celebrate about George Schultz, but you also point out areas where perhaps he fell short of maybe his own standards. Uh, uh, the, the the amount of time he stayed in the the Nixon administration, uh, for example, you point out. Give us a, uh, uh, the wave tops of of George Schultz's career prior to becoming Secretary of State, and what you think are the kind of the, the critical experiences and positions and moments. So if you if you look at the Nixon years where he held three cabinet positions, uh, Secretary of Labor, the inaugural director of the newly created Office of Management and Budget, and then Treasury Secretary, uh, you know, I think as Labor Secretary, he accomplished a great deal that uh, history uh, hasn't focused on because uh, his greatest triumphs were as Secretary of State. But when you go back and look at that period in the Nixon administration, George Shultz was a key figure in the desegregation of Southern school systems. Mm. Uh, this happened when uh, Nixon appointed him to a task force uh, to accomplish that goal that Vice President Agnew was the head of. Agnew was not really keen to get involved in that issue. So he kind of exited and Schultz ended up running the task force. Uh, and it was highly successful. When you look at the data uh, at the beginning of their work, less than 25% of urban school systems in the South were desegregated. By the time they were done, over 75% were. So it's a, it's a wonderful story of Schultz as a problem solver, which is really, I think in many ways, the, his defining characteristic. Don't get distracted by ideology. Don't get distracted by partisanship. Just figure out how to solve a problem. But uh, he was conservative. I mean, I mean, he you, was, you note that as well, that this was somebody who 
identify as a Republican, was a conservative. You talk about his rearing, you know, uh, from uh, in New York City, and then ultimately, you know, kind of his education. I mean, it, this is somebody who was a free marketer, conservative, and, and felt that those ideas won out, whether it was ideological or just reason. Indeed. You know, uh, in his early years uh, during the Great Depression, uh, he was a young man. Uh, he he watched what was going on in the country. Uh, and many people were, of course, celebrating Franklin Roosevelt's efforts to revive the American economy. Schultz was not impressed. Uh, he looked at what was going on and saw that there were still tremendous economic uh, disturbances around the country. And at that point, sort of concluded that gov government intervention uh, in the economy was not the way to go. And that was the foundation of what became a firm, firm belief in uh, free market uh, and and led to a very close relationship, uh, you know, with some of the great, uh, you know, free market economists uh, of the era. And that kind of from from who, from uh, Princeton to to University of Chicago. I mean, the education kind of all put him on uh, on that trajectory. Another facet before we move to other uh, uh, points of government service, he of course served in World War II. He did he and identify that... himself as George P. Schultz Marine. Indeed, How does that... that piece fit into the the making of the man, Bill. Well, when you look back uh, at his service as Secretary of State, you can see the uh, import of his experiences in the Marine Corps. Uh, he was dispatched to the Pacific Theater, uh, was involved in, in at least one uh, combat uh, moment uh, when his unit uh, was occupying a, a small island that had just been vacated by the Japanese. And they came under air attack uh, by Japanese warplanes, uh, and six or seven of his fellow Marines were killed uh, in that incident. That le left a major impact on him about, you know, you have to be judicious in the use of force. It's necessary, especially in the interest of advancing American diplomacy at times, so-called coercive diplomacy, but you, you have to be mindful that uh, putting troops in harm's way uh, is a major decision. He also always remembered uh, the instructions uh, of his Marine drill sergeant when uh, he was learning how to use a rifle, and the drill sergeant put it in his hands and said, never aim this at anyone unless you're willing to pull the trigger. And and Schultz always throughout the rest of his life talked about the danger of phony threats, that when you are threatening the use of American power, you have to be ready to execute. Yeah, I heard him reference that, you know, near the end of his life uh, as a, a guiding principle, not only for uh, a Marine, but as, as you note, Phil, uh, diplomats and policymakers included. Uh, exactly the, the rhetoric they use and 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 the approach to policy um let's stick just before we get to the reagan administration obviously being a secretary of treasury uh is a highly consequential role uh, not only for domestic policy but also for foreign policy and his training as an economist uh, uh made him not only well suited for labor secretary and uh, leading what uh as a first you note uh, uh head of omb but also for Treasury Secretary. Take a minute to talk about that role. Uh, obviously, during a, a pretty uh, edgy time during the Nixon administration, 
and uh, how that also prepared him to be a Secretary of State, uh, because that sort of training, of course, Jim Baker would repeat that feat. But my sense is that George Schultz was the first to make that move from Treasury to Secretary. That's that's correct. So the Treasury years were good years and bad years for Schultz. So if you look back at the economic record, uh, he was uh, you know vehemently opposed to wage and price controls, which Nixon put in place not once but twice, uh, and indeed the second time that was the ostensible reason that Schultz resigned as Treasury Secretary. He also played an absolutely critical role in a big Nixon uh, international economic uh, decision which was to uh, you know rearrange uh, exchange rates between currencies uh, take that whole system off the uh, basis on the dollar uh, and the value of America's gold reserves which was the uh, system established uh, at Bretton Woods uh, agreement just as World War II was ending and Nixon and Schultz agreed that that was no longer sustainable so off even the gold standard, now the current approach we have, which is the currency. Yeah, the same approach today. You know, when you're traveling overseas, your value of the dollar is variable against other currencies. And that was really George Schultz's uh, uh, action and advice as Treasury Secretary. Where he got into trouble was he got drawn into a kind of what I would describe as a, a sideshow of Watergate. Uh, he famously stood up to the White House when John Dean, the White House counsel, demanded that the IRS, which was under Schultz's jurisdiction at Treasury, uh, investigate and, uh, Nixon's so-called enemies list. He resisted that, but he did not resist when the White House came back and said, we want the IRS to investigate Larry O'Brien, the chair of the Democratic Party, for potential tax fraud. Uh, and and that was a, a moment you alluded to it earlier, where I think Schultz did not live up to his own values. Did you interview uh, Secretary Schultz at various points in, in, as you conducted uh, the research and put the book together? Kind of where are the points that you really I I need clarification? You know, uh, maybe a, a sensitive one like the 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 case you just raised during his time as Treasury Secretary or some other uh, point in the story, was there that moment you're like, I just need Schultz's view on this? Quite a few times. And uh, the, the, what was great about his cooperation, which was, uh, it was essentially unlimited. Anytime I asked to interview him, uh, a time would be set. And that indeed was one uh, awkward occasion where I had to go and grill him about something that he didn't really want to remember, much less talk about. Uh, and, and in the book, you, one will find his uh, comments trying to explain what he was doing and rationalize it, justify it. And it was really the old Washington argument that, uh, you know, if I'm not there, the situation will get even worse. Mm. Uh, but, you know, some of the big questions I had about his role in winding down the Cold War were clarified at these interviews. Let, let's let's move to George Schultz as Secretary of State. And, and here I want to have you outline the relationship uh, between George Schultz and, and Ronald Reagan. The reality, this was Ronald Reagan's second Secretary of State. And 
where they knew each other and clearly interacted, this wasn't one of Reagan's closest relationships. You know, you have Ed Meese, Mike Deaver, you know, uh, Dick Allen, you have other players in that uh, were prominent in the foreign policy space. Uh, to the extent that George Shultz was involved in Reagan campaigns, it was really tied to the economic side, best I can tell. Take a minute, Phil, to describe how this marriage between you know, uh, President and, and, and Secretary of State really came about. No, you're exactly right. The prior relationship uh, revolved around economic policy issues, uh, and Schultz had served as chair of an economic policy advisory board uh, during the Reagan campaign in 1980. Alexander Haig was appointed Secretary of State, flamed out after a year. Schultz was uh, president of the Bechtel Corporation, uh, and Reagan decided uh, to invite him to be Secretary of State. They didn't really have a close relationship, uh, and Schultz didn't really know what Ronald Reagan wanted to do about the Cold War. He had, uh, like everyone else during that period, had heard a lot of belligerent rhetoric from Reagan about the Soviet Union, evil empire, and so on. He had watched approvingly of the big Reagan buildup in the Defense Department. Uh, but when Schultz came to Washington as secretary uh, in, uh, in 1982, he really didn't know whether that was the beginning and end of Reagan's views about the Soviet Union, more confrontational, uh, really, than prior presidents in some ways, uh, or whether, like Schultz himself, Reagan, uh, in his heart of hearts, wanted to wind down the Cold War. And it took it took many months, indeed, several years before the two men figured out that they actually agreed on this fundamental issue. Uh, part of the problem was that uh, Schultz had a hard time getting in to see Reagan one on one. He was blocked uh, by more hardline advisors around Reagan, like Cap Weinberger at Defense and Bill Casey at CIA and Bill Clark, the National Security Advisor. Uh, and what you can see in that diary that was maintained by Ray Seitz is that over and over again, Schultz would go over to the White House hoping to have the kind of heart-to-heart -heart conversation with the president uh, about U.S.-Soviet relations and would arrive only to find uh, many of the people who opposed his views, Schultz's views, in the room. They're very frustrating to Schultz, so much so that he uh, threatened to resign a number of times. So it was it was a slowly developing relationship, uh, and it was abetted at a crucial time uh, by Nancy Reagan. All right. Well, I want to get to the relationship George Schultz had with Nancy Reagan, but let's let's stick with the three other names you just threw out there: uh, Weinberger, Casey, and, and and Clark, and and all these people. Um, had pre-existing relationships, some going back decades. Uh, uh, Weinberger, of course, served in uh, Reagan's cabinet when he was governor in California. Interesting link between Weinberger and Schultz. Of course, they were both at Bechtel together, uh, Weinberger being the general counsel before he became Reagan's secretary of defense. Casey chaired his campaign uh, in 1980. And then Clark also, uh, Judge Clark was... Uh, on his team as governor and one of his closest friends and confidant. So um, did 
did Schultz have any allies coming into this? And who recommended Schultz in the first place? <laughs> right? if, if, if the insiders were suspect of his views. Well, he actually, uh, you know, when Reagan was elected and was selecting his cabinet, there was a debate about who should be secretary of state. A couple of prominent people quietly chimed in saying Schultz was not really would not be an appropriate choice because he uh, his background was in economic policy and didn't uh, wasn't really steeped in U.S. Soviet relations and nuclear arms control issues. Two of those people were Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Uh, and uh, the people around Reagan, you know, favored uh, Haig as actually did Nixon. So, you know, Kissinger or Nixon aide. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, you know, Schultz had a very fraught relationship with Weinberger. You kind of alluded to their past history. They had worked together in the Nixon administration when uh, when Schultz became director of OMB. Cap Weinberger was appointed as his deputy. Uh, and so they they were working together in the Nixon administration. Then at Bechtel, where Schultz was the more senior figure, Weinberger was the general counsel. And then Weinberger becomes defense secretary, although he wanted, I found in the records, actually to be secretary of state. Uh, and some of the people around Reagan thought he would be an excellent secretary of state. Uh, Casey had no prior, well, he had a prior relationship with Schultz. Uh, he had been head of the SEC and then under Secretary of State uh, back during the Nixon years. And they had sort of bonded on some travel together to the Soviet Union. Uh, but ultimately, their views about the Soviet Union were not congruent. Well, uh, and Casey part carried out the whole covert operation and was you know as hawkish as they get in terms of confrontation and rolling back, correct? Yeah. That was so even though the, there was a ra interesting rapport between Casey and Schultz when they got started in the Reagan administration, it fell apart very quickly. And Clark, uh, you know, just didn't agree with what Schultz wanted to do. So, you know, this was this phalanx of opponents on Schultz's side turned out to be Nancy Reagan pivotally, also Jim Baker, who was the chief of staff at the first term for Reagan, and Mike Deaver, uh, who was deputy chief of staff and very, very close to Nancy Reagan. That whole framework, Phil, that you just outlined, that Schultz had this outlook and, and wanted to engage the Soviets um, and figure out how to wind down your words, the, the, the Cold War, and it took some time to get President Reagan there. And you had these other actors who didn't quite see it that way. They're the kind of hardened Cold Warriors. Suggests that George Schultz arrived in the role of Secretary of State with a somehow uh, decided view on what needed to happen. But as you've noted, he didn't really have uh, kind of that foreign policy experience, hadn't been dealing with the diplomats throughout his career, was far more on the economic side. When did George Schultz kind of develop that outlook? So, you know, and this is where where you see uh, a kind of common view between Schultz and Reagan. OK, uh, and the starting point for it, in my view, is that they were both outsiders in Washington. Certainly Reagan was, yeah. you know, he had been governor of California, had really very little to do with Washington before he became president. Schultz had worked in the Nixon administration, but he was not invested in Cold War uh, doctrines. 
And so the two shared a couple of observations in common, which proved to be absolutely critical. One, which was not, I think, widely understood at the time, was that the Soviet Union was a failing state uh, because its economy was in a stupor. Uh, the centrally planned Soviet economy. Uh, you know, consumers had access to almost nothing. When I got there as a New York Times reporter in 1985, the thing that shocked me most and told me most was when I began to go out to the home of Russians for dinner. Uh, and what was the centerpiece of their dinner for what a person they thought was an important, you know, American journalist? Boiled potatoes. Uh, because they didn't have access to meat. Schultz had picked up what was going on on a couple of trips to the Soviet Union during the Nixon administration. He had gone over there. His wife, who was a nurse earlier in her life, had gone to a hospital and come back to report to George that the Soviet hospital she visited was atrocious. There were no sanitary procedures. It was primitive. George went with a Soviet guide to a Black Sea resort. And where did the guide take him? Took him to an old czarist palace that had been restored and made the argument to Schultz that, look, look, we can do beautiful things and important things here. Not all our money is spent on defense. And that's sort of registered with him, huh? Isn't that interesting? So when Schultz became Secretary of State, he had a kind of innate experience-based view that the Soviet Union was a failing state. Reagan had the same view, not from any personal experience, but because I think Reagan had read a lot about the Soviet Union. And his advisors told him that was part of the, you know, National Security Decision Directive in the NSC, you know, kind of imposing kind of the defense buildup in part was to, you know, bank further bankrupt the Soviets, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And the Strategic Defense Initiative was a factor in that. So they shared that in common. They also shared in common a, a deep-seated worry about nuclear war. Uh, and that drove them. And then lastly, uh, and this was not clear for several years, they both shared a desire to negotiate with the Kremlin. I mean, it would have been hard to know that during Reagan's first years because the it was a time when all the headlines were about the red, hot rhetoric about the Soviet Union and the American military buildup. But once the two men realized that they shared all these views in common, that's that's when their friendship clicked. Let's focus on that last of the three because this gets to where I think there's some debate around President Reagan and and his approach to the Soviet Union and and George Shultz's role. Of course, President Reagan wanted to negotiate with the Soviets. It needed to be done from his judgment. He said this throughout from a position of of strength. You've set up that when George Shultz arrived and was trying to kind of get to this point, he was essentially being blocked in in. You know, physically and and policy wise, from realizing that, but did George Schultz share the approach that the time had to be right? You had, of course, you know, the Soviet leaders who were dying one at a time before you got to Gorbachev, but also the United States wasn't in a strong enough position in 1981, 82, 83, even if you would have had someone to negotiate with, both militarily and economically, uh, from. I think a Reagan standpoint. So 
was did George Schultz ideally want to begin this process in 1981 or two, or did he kind of agree that this is part of the plan, but we got to wait for our spot and it's not going to happen until midway through, you know, or the end of the first term, beginning of the second term? Well, I think the record is clear, at least the record that I had access to, which is he believed firmly in the necessity of a military buildup. Uh, but he also believed from day one uh, that we needed to open negotiating channels with the Kremlin and try to resolve some of the differences. Uh, and in fact, Bob Woodward told me just recently that he sat next to Obi Schultz, George's wife, uh, within the first year of, of Schultz's service as Secretary of State and asked her, you know, what is your husband hoping to accomplish as Secretary of State? Her answer was, he wants to end the Cold War. Uh, and so I think he came to Washington with that desire, and he tried to implement it immediately. You look back at his abortive efforts to get negotiations going in the first few years. So he was not, his attitude was, we can do this simultaneously. We can build up our military. We can put the Kremlin on the defensive, but we should start negotiating with them. And, and, and go ahead. I think the core argument of my book about Schultz and Reagan and the end of the Cold War is that Reagan came in and and in his core, he wanted to end the Cold War. He set the stage for that with his rhetoric and his military buildup, but he didn't know how to execute the diplomatic side. And his other advisors weren't interested in diplomacy particularly. And so it took George Schultz, in effect, to allow Reagan to be Reagan. Uh, and he, in a very telling way, he made a comment about that phrase, which was a common phrase in Washington at Let the time. Let Reagan be Reagan, you know, that's what the right said anytime, you know, somebody intervened, whether Deaver wasn't going conservative enough for, for, the, for the Republicans or Jim Baker, for example. Exactly. And so it was it was the rallying cry of people who let Reagan be Reagan, let him be tough with the Kremlin. Schultz's definition of let Reagan be Reagan was let him act on his inner impulses to be a peacemaker. Uh, but I think absent George Schultz as secretary of state, the end of the Cold War, it it probably wouldn't have happened the way it happened and certainly not as quickly as it happened. And and clearly that's a thrust of your argument and your, your takeaway from, from going deep in the archives of understanding the man and, uh, and what the record shows. I want to, uh, for a moment, just uh, pick up on a nuance in terms of what Bob Woodward uh, shared with you about George Schultz's wife saying he wanted to end the cold war. Of course, for Ronald Reagan, it wasn't, he was ending the Cold War through winning the Cold War. And that's what he emphasized in the years prior to becoming president and 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 through it. And, and that's certainly where many of the quote unquote hawkish advisors around him wanted to do. Now, of course, you know, what what does winning look like is all uh in the kind of the eye of 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 the person putting the win together, right? And and George Schultz clearly had a, an approach, but just wanted to fill Clarify, was it ending or winning, or was winning the way to end it? Well, it was both, it turned out. Uh, you know, the the West won the Cold War. Uh, ultimately, you know, now we're sort of back in a, a new war with Russia uh, in Ukraine. But at the time, it was, it was both. But I think the key to understanding that is 
if it is uh, bringing the winning strategy, if if you want to call it that, to a series of negotiations and agreements that sealed the Western victory in effect. Yes. Uh, and that's really what Schultz's role I'm, was. I'm just picking up on the nuance of the word ending. You, you have a, a wonderful quote from Mikhail Gorbachev in the, in the preface. And again, it's the same language. I'll read it. Without Reagan, the Cold War would not have ended. But without Schultz, Reagan would not have ended the Cold War. Um, and it makes sense that that would be the language of Mikhail Gorbachev. He would not have said that Reagan won the Cold War. Obviously, he was a key player, and and it was a his vantage point negotiated outcome. Um, but but of course, Reagan famously said, "We win, they lose." Uh, and and peace through strength was it was all about ending the Cold War in a way that it was the kind of peace that preserved freedom, the kind of peace that would preserve prosperity, and that wouldn't wouldn't accommodate the Soviet Union as it was. George Shultz bought into that entirely. No. No, of course he did. Uh, and and let's give credit where credit is due. Uh, you know, George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker were present when the when the Cold War actually ended. Uh, and, you know, they handled that very skillfully. Let's talk about the design, the diplomacy that that Schultz wanted to put in place and ultimately was able to do so. Or the most controversial elements. Where did he have to bring in uh, his his partner in crime, you know, Nancy Reagan, to help get there. And, and ultimately, uh, he discovered in President Reagan that Reagan w was seeking the opportunity to sit down and engage in, in, in kind of summitry and never really had the opportunity. Right, exactly. Uh, so the crucial moment, looking back at history, was uh, the breakthrough was thanks to Mother Nature and Nancy Reagan. Mother Nature provided a blizzard in February of 83 that shut down Washington. I lived there at the time. The snow was three feet deep. The Reagans were going to go up to Camp David for the weekend. They couldn't get there. So Nancy Reagan invites the Schultzes over for dinner. Uh, and it was that dinner where Schultz for the first time realized that Reagan had never met, as he said, a big time communist leader. Big time uh, communist leader. Huh? Yeah, that, that was George's uh, phrase. Uh, Schultz had just come back from China where he had met with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, and as the dinner unfolded, it was clear that, you know, Reagan wanted to engage with these communist leaders. And so they cooked up a very, uh, you know, modest effort at, at that dinner that would involve Reagan meeting for the first time substantively with the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Anatoly Dobrynin. Uh, by the way, that meeting, which took place, you know, within a, a week of the dinner, was opposed by uh, Bill Clark. He was thought it was a huge mistake. And out of that dinner flowed, uh, uh, again, a modest set of diplomacy that led to a, a small breakthrough with the release in Moscow of a group of Pentecostals who had been holed up in the American embassy because they were going to be Which thrown. Reagan prioritized from the beginning. And if you look at Reagan's diary, right. he was advocating for them in his first communication to Brezhnev. I mean, he was always top of mind for him right. in light of these you know, yeah. the people whose freedom was denied. Yeah, and so again, I think this this uh, underscores Schultz's core, essential, pivotal role. Reagan had wanted to do that for a long time. Nothing had happened. Mm. Schultz comes, they meet Dobrynin. Schultz and Dobrynin agree, let's 
see if we can make this happen. Reagan makes a, an absolutely critical promise, which he uh, lived up to, which is if you let them out, I won't crow about it. And he didn't. And they were ultimately allowed not only to return to Soviet society without being arrested, but ultimately to emigrate. Uh, and so that's in, in a thumbnail example of the difference that Schultz made. Prior to that, there were he had, the president hadn't even met with the Soviet ambassador. Uh, so that dinner was kind of a breakthrough moment. Uh, and then slowly but surely, Schultz would kind of prevail over the opponents and put together a diplomatic strategy uh, to deal with the Kremlin. But as you said, you know, there was really nobody to talk to for a while. Brezhnev was aged, then he died. Andropov comes in, he was suffering from kidney failure right from the beginning, he died. Chernenko comes in, you know, Chernenko was, was almost a corpse when he took off it. Uh, and so it wasn't until March of 85 when Gorbachev, different generation, different thinking about the Soviet Union takes power, that there's actually someone to talk to in Moscow. And don't forget, Gorbachev comes in just after Reagan is reelected to a second term. And that gave Reagan, I think, a runway to operate on in his second term that had not been uh, easy for him to try to use in his first term. I want to talk about the moments where it had to be challenging for George Shultz leading the diplomatic effort, given Reagan's own sensibilities of what he was and was not willing to give up. I'm referring to Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, Star Wars. But before we go there, talk about Nancy Reagan and how her role, not just inviting them for dinner that, you know, evening in 1983 when there's a blizzard, they don't go to Camp David, but her aspirations for President Reagan and, and the kind of the spirit, uh, you know, between the two, the common spirit between the two. She wanted her husband to go down in history as a peacemaker which in fact he did. Uh, but I think if it hadn't been for her, that might not have happened because she and Schultz were really critical to that happening. She was concerned about the the depiction of her husband in the first term uh, because of the advice she felt, the bad advice she felt he was getting from Weinberger, Clark, Casey, and others. And she thought her husband was being, uh, was in danger of, of having a presidency that would be recalled uh, by historians as a failed presidency in terms of international progress. So she, the, the, as I say, the blizzard was an opportunity that, you know, drove up, but she was ready to seize it. Uh, and inviting them over that night, there that was a calculated decision uh, because she liked Schultz. She didn't know him that well yet, but she saw in him someone she felt she could trust. She openly said she didn't trust Bill Clark. Uh, and in fact, uh, a few months after, six months after this dinner, Clark's out. He's moved over to become interior secretary. That happened because of Nancy Reagan. There's no question about that. 
So she played an absolutely pivotal role. She, uh, she once told Brian Mulroney, the Canadian prime minister, that I have to protect Ronnie from being Ronnie. And by that, she meant that he didn't like confrontations. Uh, he he was loyal to his advisors like Clark and Weinberger and Meese and others who had served with him in Sacramento. Uh, but, you know, her she felt her duty was to make sure that his interests were served, her husband's interests. And there was no better ally or player in the cabinet for Nancy Reagan than George Schultz. And and and, and let's be frank about it. I mean, Schultz, Schultz understood this and uh, and uh, I think cultivated. Uh, and and, uh, you know, they kind of love to banter. The Reagans hosted a lot of their elegant state dinners, and, and Nancy took to making sure that George Schultz sat next to whomever the Hollywood starlet was at the dinner. <laughs> and 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 in fact, you know, one of Schultz's greatest, fondest memories was, was uh, you know, dancing, uh, you know, at, at these dinners, uh, you know, with these starlets. So, uh, and at one point when her husband was ill and couldn't attend a dinner at the last minute, Nancy danced with George Schultz and and she wrote him a sent him an inscribed photo of the two of them dancing and the phrasing was something like at last my turn. <laughs> so a, a trusting and and uh, a warm relationship that created openings for the diplomatic uh, approach that George Schultz wanted to take. But at the end of the day, it had to be President Reagan's and. Uh, Talk about one of those pivotal moments where they're ma making progress and of the type of, of arms negotiations that President Reagan always wanted, which was reduction. It was mm -hmm. it had to be a departure from the approach in detente where you're having treaties designed to prevent an increase in nuclear weapons. This was about arms reductions treaties. And that, of course, was the INF Treaty. And President Reagan got very close to doing it, uh, but ultimately SDI was uh, was the the, the stumbling block, um, and then they they subsequently uh, got the INF treaty done. But where was where was George Schultz uh, on that, and and did he share the view of of President Reagan both in terms of arms control, arms reduction, and uh, the need to hold on to SDI? Well, he certainly shared the view that we needed to go from uh, limiting arms, nuclear arms growth, to actually reducing the number of nuclear weapons. Uh, when it came to the INF, these intermediate range nuclear forces, that was actually a pivotal moment where you where you can see the combination of strength and diplomacy. The United States was insistent on placing so-called Pershing intermediate range missiles in West Germany to counter the Soviet missiles of the similar kind in Western parts of the Soviet Union. It was a struggle to get those deployed into West Germany. It was done ultimately, I think, a courageous act by Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor at the time. There was fierce public opposition to that. But it, it was the positioning of, of those missiles in West Germany that was a pivotal turning point. Uh, so you've got there the demonstration of Western willpower to confront the Soviet Union. Then you roll in the SDI initiative. Schultz's position on SDI 
when he first heard about it, which, by the way, was at the last minute, you know, just a few days before. It was Reagan. a White House concoction that the cabinet officials were not aware of. Right, exactly. Uh, he was appalled. He, th he thought this technology is fanciful. It, this stuff can't be built in our lifetimes. And furthermore, it's going to upend the, the whole nuclear deterrence policy. You know, if there's actually a shield against Soviet missiles attacking the United States, you know, then the Russians will fear a first strike by the Americans uh, and so on and so on. But once Reagan gave the speech announcing it, he got in line, supported it, and I think used it effectively, as did Reagan, as a, a bargaining ship with the Kremlin, except in the end, they weren't willing to bargain it. Uh, and so That's here what we're we talking about and Reagan, yeah, I know. Yeah, right. We're Reagan's Reagan's not willing to give it away. What is Schultz's reaction to all that? Yeah. So here to me, this is a, a kind of um, it's it's still a bit of a mystery to me. So they're using it at leverage. It's pretty effective leverage. You know, before Gorbachev goes to the SNAP summit in uh, Reykjavik, he meets with the Politburo. Those records have now been, uh, you know, unveiled. And you see in the minutes of those meetings that Gorbachev very candidly says to his fellow Soviet leaders, we can't compete uh, in defense spending with the United States. It's going to uh, upend our economy. So he goes to Reykjavik wanting to make a deal. And, and Reagan and Schultz come to Reykjavik not really knowing exactly what to expect because there had been very little, if any, preparation for this summit meeting. And lo and behold, they find themselves around a table in a little cottage by the sea, uh, you know, in Reykjavik, talking not only about reducing nuclear weapons, but eliminating them, abolishing them. Astounding, right? All on the table. All on the table uh, and this close to an agreement. Uh, but it fell apart because Reagan didn't want to yield on Star Wars. Gorbachev made a proposal, which in retrospect probably was a compromise that could have been accepted, which was, well, okay, 10 years of research on the technologies in, quote, in the laboratory, unquote. The technologies were so uh, futuristic they probably could have spent 10 years working on them in the laboratory uh, effectively. But Reagan said no. He handed Schultz a note at the table when he was declining to accept this proposal and said, am I doing the right thing? And George wrote back, yes, I agree. So the summit fell apart. But it, in fact, it was a pivotal summit because it laid the groundwork, as you suggested, for ultimately the treaty to eliminate the intermediate range forces in in the European theater. One more facet of George Schultz's diplomacy and President Reagan's outlook um, and the foreign policy of the day, of course, Reagan's closest partner in the Cold War in terms of other world leaders was Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher, of course, wasn't enthusiastic initially about the approach to Gorbachev. Talk to us about Schultz and Thatcher and Schultz in the UK and how he managed that piece because it was a, compl a complication. You talk about the people inside the White House and the administration who didn't share George Schultz's view, but Thatcher was a challenge as well. She wasn't, and she wasn't. In the sense, remember, Gorbachev went to London before he became Soviet leader. He was already a Politburo member. And during that visit, she announced, uh, you know, I think we can do business with him. Yes, right. Uh, which was an important moment. And, I, uh, uh, you know, she was the first to recognize that there could be a, a sea change in the Soviet leadership. 
But once Gorbachev came in power and Reagan started to negotiate with him about arms reductions, she was concerned they were going too far too fast. And in fact, after Reykjavik, she caught the first plane to Washington uh, and, as Schultz described it, handbagged him. Remember, Margaret Thatcher would always bag. carry a handbag on her arm. Uh, and she was uh, outraged that uh, they had uh, actually talked about abolishing nuclear weapons. So yeah, she was, I think, a break to some extent on what uh, Reagan uh, wanted to do at that point. Uh, but ultimately, she didn't prevent him from winding down the Cold War. And I think in the end, she supported it. Let's go to elements of George Shultz's legacy on and perhaps uh, what has stayed today or should stay today. I'll highlight a few and love to get your, your take on them. And then we'll hit on the lightning round. Uh, again, we're with Phil Taubman, author of The Life and Times of George P. Shultz and The Nation's Service. Out, available, go on uh, Amazon. You can find it, published by Stanford University Press. In terms of legacy, what was the metaphor that George Schultz used for the gardening metaphor for diplomacy and uh, kind of maybe capturing his approach and approach he thinks others should, should, should and, 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 and others have employed it? You know, Schultz, Schultz had a couple of phrases that he loved to. Uh, Side. And one of them was about the importance of being a gardener uh, in managing diplomacy. And by that, he meant that you can't wait, you know, between meetings, uh, you know, to conduct diplomatic business, that you have to take care of the small things in order to get the big things accomplished. And the, the analogy was, you know, if you don't weed the garden, it's going to get overgrown with weeds. And so he was very uh, conscientious and adept at that. The other thing that he believed very strongly uh, that he put in play constantly, the phrase, trust is the coin of the realm. And by that, he meant if you're going to get anything done in diplomacy or really in life, uh, you know, you've got to work in a trusting relationship with people. And you can't see a better example of that than the trusting relationship that he built with Ronald Reagan, which was really the basis for everything else. And he didn't have that trusting relationship for the first few years. And then the trusting relationship that he built with Edward Shevardnadze, his Kremlin counterpart after Gorbachev took office, and the relationship that he built himself with Gorbachev. Uh, you know, it was, these were four men who really wound down the Cold War, and it was the trust that developed between the four of them that I think Schultz was the primary proponent uh, of that made a world of difference. And of course, George Schultz continued to write about that, trust of the coin of the realm. In fact, it's one of the last opinion piece I think he wrote, maybe the last one appearing and maybe in the Wall Street Journal or other, he was uh, a century old perhaps or close to it when, when he penned it. Um, what was he writing about towards the end of his life reflecting on that? I mean, he did. He, he wrote a basically a, a little pamphlet. Uh, that I don't have the exact title, but it was essentially reflecting on a hundred years. 
he was about to turn 100. And he talked about what he thought were the most important uh, characteristics that leaders needed to have. Uh, and one of them was, you know, building trust with your counterparts. Uh, the other, you know, was cultivating the diplomatic garden, uh, a, an emphasis on problem solving, setting aside ideology, setting aside partisanship, uh, taking problems apart and and trying to solve them. He had a great phrase for that, which sounds kind of corny, but when you actually stop and look at it, it's pretty profound and it worked very effectively, which is if you bring people together and they're arguing over principle, they'll never come to agreement. If you bring them together and you ask them to solve a problem, they'll work together to try to solve it. Let's move to our lightning round. Uh, thank you, Phil Talman, and, and uh, uh, your your work on George Schultz, the authorized biography, although I had total independence, as you know, to the outset. Please. In the, in the nation's <laughs> service. Uh, let's, uh, as we ask all our guests here, get your take on our lightning round questions. What is your favorite book on President Reagan, speech by President Reagan, and quote, uh, President Reagan, give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have? Well, I think speech, I would point to the Westminster speech, uh, which he delivered to the British Parliament. Uh, that sort of summarized his uh, take on the Soviet Union. And if you, you go back and look at it closely, you can see all the elements of his policy, including the diplomatic element, which was kind of dormant uh, at that period and, and was kind of activated by Schultz. You know, the most memorable phrase was tear down the wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Uh, but, you know, and that was a dramatic moment. Uh, books by Reagan, I think, you know, his kind of quasi-autobiography, uh, you know, is a very interesting look at the man. And, and you know, I highly recommend to people who haven't read it, uh, you know, the, his own writings, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan spent a lot of time writing. There was a perception of him at the time that he was kind of uh, not illiterate, but this was not a literary man. Uh, and when you go back and look, uh, he actually was very thoughtful uh, and spent a lot of time uh, recording his thoughts in longhand. Uh, those books, which I read carefully, are, are very interesting. And his diary, by the way, his presidential diary, which I cite in, in the book uh, quite a few times, you go back and you look at crucial moments in his presidency through the eyes of George Shultz, which is what I'm doing in the book, and you see where Reagan chimes in along the way, uh, supporting Shultz quietly behind the scenes. Phil Tabin, thank you so much for being on the show. Congratulations on this great accomplishment in the nation's service, the life and times of George P. Shultz. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.